Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We're going to begin a new series today in the book of 1 Timothy. So you can be turning in your Bibles to the New Testament letter of Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy thinking about the title of the series, just called it To Timothy, uh, and uh, contrary to what uh, Donald Trump or our British friends would say, we're not going to be in 2 Timothy, which they call To Timothy, we're going to be in 1 Timothy, which is addressed to this young pastor named Timothy. In life, there are generally two kinds of people in this category. There are rule followers and there are rule breakers. Even amongst our own children, we can look and say, well, she's such a rule follower. I won't say which one of mine that is. And we can look at another and say, she, it gives you an idea, right? She and she, all right, we'll see what Isaac turns out to be. She is such a rule breaker, a boundary pusher. You know, people, generally marriages are made up of these two kinds of people, generally. There's a rule follower, I'll tell you which one of us that is, and then there's the rule breaker, the boundary expander. Let's call it, it's very positive, isn't it, the boundary expander. Life is good when you have both, when you have both to keep the other one in line. You have the rule follower that literally keeps everyone in line, and then you have the rule breaker to help the rest of the family loosen up and to relax, or maybe it's in a friendship or a different relationship or at work that you have these types of relationships going on. I'll tell you something I've come to enjoy as the self-admitted rule breaker in the family and in, in, in most things. I've come to enjoy directions. And I'll tell you one of the reasons I've come to enjoy directions is because I saw one of the rule breakers in chief, namely my father-in-law, Mr. Kim, love him to death, uh, put together and then have to unput together and then put back together several pieces of furniture that taught me it's very important to open up the instruction book and to look and not just to make things up and to follow the rules, follow the instructions. I need that. I want to do things right. And it's amazing to me when I actually will need an instruction book. It might be the easiest thing, one of Anna's toys or Lily's toys or something at Christmas. And it seems like, well, you can just snap these things together, one, two, three, and you'll be done with this. No, no, no. I want the instruction book because the last thing I want is to put something together and have to unput it together to put it back together the right way. Many of you who work with me and the staff, you'll know that I say, give me bullet points. I need bullet points. If you come to me and say, Pastor Matt, I want uh, an announcement on the screen or I want something to be announced for the church, what I say to you, okay, text me some bullet points. I need to know exactly what to say, when to say it. We need instructions. We need directions. We need rules. And yes, we even need rule followers. They make life work. They make society work. 
And the question this morning as we come to 1 Timothy is how much more do we need rules and directions and instructions in the church? How much more do we need them for pastors, for deacons, for church members to know how the church of God ought to act? That's the purpose of this letter and actually these three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, in which Paul writes to these young pastors, Timothy and Titus, on how to do what God has called them to do. Timothy was a young man from a town in Asia Minor called Lystra. And he met Paul and was called to follow Paul and Silas on what we call Paul's second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 16. And he was instructed by Paul, who is the author of this letter. As we see in verse 3 of this first chapter, he was instructed by Paul once he was with Paul for a while to, quote, verse 3, remain at Ephesus to serve the church there as a pastor, as a missionary, as an evangelist, to do the work of preaching and teaching and establishing order in the church. That's really the author, the audience, Paul, to Timothy, as you do your Bible studies, you do, it does us well to see what the date is of the writing. And for this one, we're, we're unfortunately uh, unsure when it was written. Though we do know it must have been after 51 A.D. That gives a lot of specificity, doesn't it? Uh, a, after A.D. 51, because we're, we're pretty sure that's when Paul met Timothy. So after he met Timothy, at some point in the future, he commissions Timothy to go to Ephesus and to be the pastor of this church in the city of Ephesus. And that's where we get this letter written to Timothy as this pastor at this church in Ephesus. Ephesus was not unlike larger cities in our own nation today. It was a bustling city of commerce, business, trade, lots of things going in and out. A bustling city, cosmopolitan sort of world, especially for the first century. But like all of our big cities as well, it was also a center of idolatry. A center where the occult was practiced, where paganism was rampant. If you remember Paul's own journey to Ephesus in Acts 19 and Acts 20, remember there was a riot in the city over the preaching of Paul. And why was there a riot? Because as Paul was preaching the gospel, these idol makers were being shut down because people were turning away from their idols and turning to Jesus. And so as these people, these idol makers' livelihoods were being taken away, they rushed on Paul. And brought them before this trial there in the amphitheater. Remember, the whole riot took place and Paul was persecuted, as was the church, and he had to escape. Ephesus was a big, bustling city of commerce, but also idolatry and paganism. In Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, we see Paul's own fear about what would happen in Ephesus once he leaves as he departs from Ephesus, he gathers the Ephesian elders of the church there, and he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, I know that when I leave, my fear is that when I leave, fierce wolves will come in, false teachers will come in, and will divide the flock. And then he says, I pray that you will stand firm and shepherd the flock that God has put under your care. And now I want you to insert this young man, Timothy, into all that. And ask, Timothy, do you think you would like some instructions? Do you think Timothy would say, absolutely, give me instructions. 
Give me the bullet point. Show me the book. What do I need to do today? Timothy needed that. We need that. Because in the 21st century, the church in our context is not a whole lot different than that of Ephesus from the book of Acts. And as Paul writes to Timothy, and we hear his words to this young pastor, may we hear his words to our pastors, to me, and may we hear his words to us as a church. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Number one in the opening verses, verses one through five, we see a loving charge. A loving charge. And I want to challenge you to do something, as I do every time we come to an epistle and we read these, these introductions. Never, ever skip the introduction. The body of the Word of God begins in verse 1, not just down in verse 3. These introductions are so important. And in verses 1 through 2, we see the rest of the book really set up. Why? Because Paul says and establishes from the beginning, this is not from me. This is not from some man. This is not my imagination or my opinions or my thoughts or my feelings on the matter. This is what? I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1, by command of God. Paul fronts this claim that none of what he is about to say to Timothy is from him. None of it is the invention of some person. Rather, it comes by the command of God and of Jesus Christ. This is no game for Paul. This is no time for sharing his opinions or his personal thoughts on the matter. This is his time by the authority of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus to share with Timothy the very commands of God. And Timothy is linked to this. Why? Because Paul says, this is written to you, verse 2, Timothy, my true child in the faith. So just as much as Paul's calling was from a command of God himself... From the command of Jesus himself, so he now commissions and sends out this young man, his son in the faith, Timothy, to go and take that authority and take those commands of God to his local church. And let me just remind you that that's all we're supposed to do as pastors. 
That's the only calling I have as your pastor, or Pastor Matt or Pastor Zane, as we teach and as we preach and as we lead and pastor the flock of God that he's put under our care. That's all we can do is rely on the word of God, the truth of God, from the command of God. And I've told you this so many times. If we ever start saying Matt says or Zane says or other Matt says instead of what God says, well, you can fire us because we're no longer doing the thing that God has called us to do. We are here to be the under-shepherds of the great shepherd, Jesus, only by the command and the truth of God. And so, lest we begin to think, well, this is just Paul. Well, that's popular thinking in some circles, even in Christianity today. Well, that's just Paul talking. I know, I know Paul addresses homosexuality here, but Jesus never talked about it. How many of you heard that discussion before? Have you heard that argument before? Well, that's just Paul that's not Jesus. Well, this isn't just Paul. And Paul would not want us to think this is just Paul. This is the command of God himself. This is the authority of Jesus himself. And so as we read this letter, what we read is real and binding and serious. And the purpose of it, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, is that the church of God and those in the church of God ought to know how to behave. And that's not just about how we behave when we're together, but how we live and how we act as the people of God. But the last part of verse 2 is also important. Lest we begin to think that this is some sort of domineering thing, that it's arrogant and that it's rude. Well, I come with the power and the command of God, so I can tell you what to do. No, unless we begin to think that, look at how Paul frames it. According to the grace, the mercy and the peace from God and Christ Jesus our Lord. A pastoral ministry must have both the authority and the command of God and Jesus, but also the love and the grace and the peace of God in Christ. And as we see this command to Paul and to Timothy, we see a reminder of the gospel, a reminder that we who deserve God's wrath That we who deserve condemnation and death have been given what? Grace, mercy, and peace. It's a reminder of who we are as pastors and leaders and members that should drive us to humility and to love and to grace for other people. It's a reminder that we should bind everything up in this love and mercy and grace and peace that God has given us in Jesus. And this is a very needed reminder for some pastors and some churches who have forgotten why we're here in this world. Yes, we are called to call sinners to repent, to turn away from their sins, and we're to be honest about what those sins are, as Paul is here. We're called to do that, but we're called to do it with a spirit of love and grace. Calling people to repent, hoping that they will repent and come to faith in Jesus. Wanting more people to come to know Jesus. How often is our preaching, how often is our public witness against sin? And those times when we see supposed Christian groups protesting using hateful language, violent language against unbelievers. And we think, what in the world's wrong with this picture? 
They're calling those people to repent. You know, the Westboro Baptist Church was one of the biggest ones, and it's so regretful that they use the name Baptist because I don't think they're even a church, let alone Baptist. But they're the ones that show up at all the funerals and the events and things, and God hates fill in the blank with whatever uh, minority or whatever thing you want to put in there. God hates these people. God hates to repent. You know, I wonder if they were out there calling people to repent, if someone actually did repent, I kind of wonder if they would even be happy about it. And that should tell you where the spirit of people is when you're calling people to repent. As you're calling people to come to faith in Christ and telling people to turn from their sin, what is in your heart and your mind? Is there a real desire to see them repent and come to Christ? Or would you be like that older son in the story of the prodigal son with your arms folded, standing in the corner, wondering how God could even show grace to them? Paul wants to remind us this morning that the call to repentance, the call to come to faith in Christ, is a call of love. We're going to see that today, even though Paul calls Timothy to rebuke this false teaching. Look at verse 3. It's a different opener for Paul. We typically, as we've seen, we've seen Paul say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, verse 3. But what does he do here in 1 Timothy 1, 3? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. Where does he begin with this young pastor, Timothy? This big, bustling city church of Ephesus. Where does he begin Here's where you start out loving your people, Timothy. Charge these certain people not to teach what they've been teaching. Now, is Paul hearing reports of teaching in Ephesus that's false? Is, are his fears from Acts 20 that the fierce wolves will come in, are they coming to pass and he knows about it? Well, there seems to be some reality to these claims because over in verse 20 of this same chapter, he actually names some names. Hymenaeus and Alexander. There might be many more. This seems to be rooted in reality that Paul is hearing reports that there is false teaching at the church in Ephesus. And so where he starts with this young pastor is an uncomfortable place. Yes, we want to hear how to love your people. Yes, we want to hear, Timothy, how to preach to your people, how to care for your people, how to pastor your people. But here's the first thing I want you to do, Timothy, if you remember charge certain persons to stop teaching what they are teaching. Verse 4, they've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. There's some more evidence here that what Paul is talking about is rooted in something that's actually going on. He gives two sort of similar examples of something going on. He uses the word myths, which seems to indicate that there might have been some paganism creeping into the church. After all, a lot of these people are Gentiles coming from the Greco-Roman world and their temple religions and their mystery religions and whatever god and goddess and idol they served. And as they come into the church, there is always the threat that they're going to bring some of that mess with them into the church. And so maybe that was what was going on. That's what Paul means by myths, these pagan traditions from the Greco-Roman world. But then he talks about endless genealogies. Now, this goes to another prong that often threatened the church, the Judaizers. He seems to be indicating by genealogies that there may have been Jewish sects within the church. 
that were emphasizing their heritage, their tribal lineage as Jews, and somehow setting that up over the Gentile Christians as we see in other letters in the New Testament. The book of Colossians and the book of Galatians also deals with some of these very same threats. And Paul says, it doesn't matter which false teaching we're talking about, whether we're talking about the influx of paganism into the church or the influx of this Judaizing element into the church, whatever it is, it's not the gospel. And it's a threat to the gospel and it's a threat to your church. And so Paul says, these are contrary to the stewardship, he says. The stewardship, your version might say, the good order that is from God by faith. This is how Paul often speaks of the gospel. Specifically, it's how Paul speaks of the gospel and his ministry in that gospel. A stewardship. Something that's been given to him, again, not originating with him, something given to him by God that he's supposed to take care of and to watch and to guard And now he says to Timothy, you better watch out because these threats, these false teachings, these false ideas are threatening the very thing that you're supposed to be guarding, namely the gospel that is about faith in Christ. And Paul says these false teachings, these false gospels are not compatible. Listen, they're not compatible with that true gospel. There's no room for everybody in this tent. When it comes to the primary issues of the gospel, it is not a big tent. It is not a broad way. There's one open door. There's one way. There's one life. And there's one response. Faith alone. And if there's any addition to that, Someone comes along and says, yes, Jesus, he died, he was buried, he rose again. That's great. Yes, you should put your faith in Jesus. That's wonderful. But also, you should know immediately you're dealing with false teaching. Yes, faith in Jesus, but also make sure you get to this too. And you can't really be a Christian, or watch out for this one, you're not a mature Christian, unless it's this, 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 and this. Also, in addition to Jesus. When it comes to the gospel, eternity for people is in the balance. And there's no room for error. And so Paul says, quickly, quickly rebuke these people. The modern society, and dare I say even the modern church, is very allergic to this kind of thinking. Our society and our culture, when we talk about religion and spiritual things, kids, you're going to hear this in high school and college. We all hear it all the time on on TV shows and the news. What does our culture say about religion, about truth, about heaven, eternal life? There are many paths. There are many truths. There are many ways. And so when they look at us Christians, they say, how dare you say, Christian, that you know the one and only way? Sadly, church after church, denomination after denomination fall because they begin to let that kind of thinking creep into the church. And listen, no one says anything. How it often starts in a church is a Sunday school teacher or an aberrant pastor 
or someone else in the church that begins to, on the side, accumulate followers for themselves. And regardless of what the pastor and the church teaches and believes, this person has accumulated a following for themselves and says, no, actually, it's this way. Here, and watch out for this, here's the deeper stuff. Here's the secret stuff that the rest of them don't know, that the rest of them don't have time for. When that happens, watch out for false teaching. And the modern church and modern society is just loose enough to say, eh, what difference does it really make? When it comes to the modern church, we might not be dealing with mythology. We might not be dealing with Judaizing, at least in the same way. But what else do we deal with in the modern church? How about the creeping in of the prosperity gospel? How about the creeping in of the word of faith movement? How about the creeping in of liberalism and worldly philosophy and pluralism that sneaks into churches and sneaks into the pastorate and sneaks into denominations and slowly from the inside out like a cancer kills them? Oh God, let this be our prayer today. Give us churches and pastors that will stand for the truth that will stand for the word, that will stand for the gospel against false teaching and will so give life to their churches. I warned about this earlier, and Paul warns about this. Paul says there are fierce wolves that are going to creep in. And so it's easy to see Paul's charge in this warning and go all in. It's easy to see this charge to say, go in and rebuke these people. And instead of showing love, mercy, and peace, to show arrogance and hatred and anger, to be, as Paul says, puffed up with knowledge. So that our defense of the truth is not really about the love of God's people, but it's about showing ourselves smarter in a debate. We can get to that point, and it's easy to see how we can get there because we are passionate about truth. We are passionate about the truth of God and the gospel and the word. But it's easy to forget why we're supposed to do it, the love of people, the love of God, and to switch over into arrogance and pride and just try to win the argument. But what does Paul say in verse 5 should be the aim, should be the charge? Look at this. The aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That's completely mind-boggling to our world, to our society. That we would dare call people to repent, call them out on their sin, warn them of false teaching, point them to only one Savior. The world cannot understand how in the world we say, and the point of all this is love. Love for God and love for those people. Listen, we warn false teachers. We warn sinners. We warn unbelievers, not from pride, not from superiority, but from a place of love and mercy. A desire to see them repent and believe, not to see them condemned in their error. Oh, how easy it is for us to fall off the either side here, isn't it? 
On one side, you can fall into the ditch of outright compassion where you compromise all truth just to be nice to everybody. And on the other side, you can fall into the ditch of arrogance and pride where you're so concerned for the truth and so concerned for right doctrine that you're prideful and arrogant and hateful. And so you got to keep your cart, your boat right there in the middle. Defending truth, yes, but also doing it in love and grace and mercy. Listen, this morning, Paul says that the aim of all this is love. Tell people the truth about sin. Tell people the truth about hell. Tell people the truth about the gospel and about Jesus. Paul says the aim of this is love. Next two verses, we see a dire warning. In Matthew 15, 14, Jesus referred to the religious leaders of his day as the blind leading the blind. And we use that phrase all the time sometimes, don't we? It's the blind leading the blind. Think about uh, government situations and political situations or maybe situations at your work where you deal with some minor incompetencies on behalf of people. It's the blind leading the blind. Well, Jesus used that phrase of the religious leaders in his day. And I think Paul would use that same idea of these false teachers, that you have blind people being led by other blind people Jesus says, into a ditch, I think Paul would say over a cliff, or onto the rocks. Well, you start with blind people, you give them blind leaders, and without warning either one of them, where does that end for both cases? Look at verse 6, Paul says, such is the case with these teachers, certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from what? What? Well, swerving from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Look at this. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding the blind leading the blind. Right over the cliff, right over the side, right into the rocks. It's interesting that when Paul uses these two words, uh, swerving and wandered away, could literally be translated missing the mark and turning aside. And that, that kind of takes us back to verse 5 when he says, the aim, the direction, the goal of our charge is love. That's our aim. That's our goal. And certain people in their false teaching are swerving from that. They're missing the aim. They're missing the goal. They're missing the mark. And as they turn away, they're taking other people with them. And so it's not just the drivers and the captains and the false teachers that are endangering themselves, that are endangering all those who will follow them. And what is the end result? Paul says in verse 19 about these false teachers, many will be shipwrecked in their faith. Love does not ignore that. Love sees a ship heading for the rocks and flags it down, yelling, waving, shouting, shooting flare guns. Get out of the boat. Adjust your course. Do something. These blind teachers driving the boats are steering these helpless people right to the rocks. And Paul shows us this dichotomy between truth and false teaching truth listen truth is rooted in a love of God and a love of other people 
Truth is rooted in a love for God's word. You say, I love God, but do you take God at his word? Do you take God's word as truth? And do you love other people enough to tell them that truth? See, the truth is rooted in a love for God, a love for people. False teaching, though, is rooted in a love of self. And it may not be evident on the surface, but if you listen carefully to false teaching, you will hear it. It becomes about me. It becomes about my intellect. It becomes about my understanding of certain biblical concepts or what I think are certain biblical concepts and me bringing a following along for myself, Paul says, for selfish gain. Whereas truth charts a course according to God's word, false teaching charts a course for destruction. And as they wander and as they veer away from these, they're heading for certain doom. Verse 7 is the saddest, though, because Paul says it makes no difference to these false teachers. Ignorant as they are, unknowledgeable as they are, they go on. And what does Paul say they do? Without understanding, they don't really know what they're talking about, but they keep on making confident assertions about it anyway. The blind leading the blind. And in their pride and their arrogance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 2, that they have seared consciences. Whereas the truth comes from, remember verse 5, it comes from sincere faith and a good conscience. False teaching comes from this seared conscience as they damn themselves and they damn their hearers. Sadly, I think many of us know these types you know, the Bible teacher on TV or on the radio or maybe you knew one once upon a time in a church somewhere that knew all the quote-unquote hidden meanings, all the codes, all the new ideas, and you found them spinning and twisting and perverting Scripture to what Paul says, promote speculations. Not to anchor in truth, not to anchor in the truth of God's word and the gospel, but to promote conspiracy, to promote speculation that Paul says just never ends. It just keeps on going, that distracts from the gospel, that distracts from the truth of God's word. One of my favorite Bible teachers and preachers is Alistair Begg, and one thing he says all the time, you can hear him on the radio podcast, not Alex Trebek. But Alistair Begg, uh, a Scottish guy, good accent. You can listen to him read, you know, a soup can or something. But he preaches well, too. Now, one of the things he says is the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. And so when you hear false teachers make the not plain things the main things, that should be point number one. Red flag goes up. Something's wrong here. This person is making a conspiracy, a speculation, some weird thing I've never heard before. That suddenly has become the main thing for them. And it's a sign that you're dealing with a false teacher. And Paul says, warn them. They're making confident assertions about things that they do not understand. Warn them for their sake. Warn them for the sake of those under their spell, because the end for them will be shipwreck. Paul says, this is love. 
This is the aim for believers. Not just knowledge, not just the desire to be right, but love for Christ, love for his word, steering people away from the rocks of error and into the harbor of God's truth in Christ. You think about this with your own kids. You know, whether it's Anna or Lily or one of my, you know, Isaac's not doing anything yet, but uh, one of those doing something I know is dangerous for them. You know, we get out of the car. Just yesterday, got out of the car, put Lily on the side, and she's standing there, we're in the parking lot. And of course, what does she do? Brr, make a beeline for the, for the, the road where, where we are in the parking lot. And you say, no, 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 no. Now don't say no, 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 no to Lily and jerk her back and make her cry because I hate her. I do that because I love her. And now you see the aim that Paul is talking about in warning these false teachers and their hearers. The aim is love. You're heading for the rocks. You're heading over the cliff. Stop and come to the truth of God in Christ. Lastly, we see a needed reminder in verses 8 through 11. Paul brings up these genealogies. And now in verse 8, he brings up the law. Now we know that the law, it sounds like he's trying to correct something, doesn't he? Now we know that the law is good. It sounds like he's maybe thinking someone saying that the law is bad. Now, on one hand, you had what we called the Judaizers. And here's just a really quick definition of what Judaizers are. You can read about it in Galatians. The Judaizers were Jewish Christians that had come to faith in Christ. Or maybe they were just Jews within the church that had not come to faith in Christ. And what they do by their Judaizing is they're attempting to force the old covenant law or the old covenant customs, or the old covenant dietary regulations, or the old covenant feast, Judaizing is when those people try to force that upon the new covenant church, whether they're Jews or not. In other words, they would have said to the Gentile Christians, you Gentile Christians have Jesus and that's great, but you also need, remember this, come over here, you need this, 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 and this, this too. And it's all the Old Testament law. That was Judaizing. And so that's one false teaching. Watch out for that. Jesus plus something. But there was another ditch you can fall off of. Well, if we're no longer under the law, and now we're under grace, what does the law even matter anymore? It doesn't matter anymore. And so Paul says, Romans 6, 1, why not just go on sinning? That grace may abound. And so on the other side of this, you see the one ditch is falling into Judaizing and putting people under the old covenant. The other side is, uh, here's the fancy word for it, it's called antinomianism. It just means no lawism. <laughs> so uh, we're not under the law anymore, we're under grace, so do what you want. The law doesn't matter. There's no commands. This is a radical kind of vision of grace that gives people a license to sin. And they would say that anytime someone tells you not to sin or not to do something or to do something, oh, you're putting people under the law. You're putting them in bondage to the law. And that's not the gospel. Paul says both sides miss the point completely. Verse 8, he says, the law is good. It's not bad. We are not under the law in terms of salvation, but the law is good. 
Paul says, as long as it is used correctly. And he goes on in verses 9 through 10 to basically sum up the Ten Commandments. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men, or for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And Paul is just sort of summarizing the Ten Commandments with a few specific examples of some of the Ten Commandments. And his point in this is to say that that law is good, and that law is holy, and it shows us what God hates, and it shows us what God loves. But if you're trying to use that law to attain salvation for yourself, or to teach obedience as a means of getting saved, Paul says you're using it incorrectly. Likewise, if you look at that law and disregard it and say, no, I don't care about any of that, Paul says you're using it incorrectly. What does Paul say it's used for? To convict the unrighteous in their sin. To kill people in their self-righteousness so that they can then be made alive by the gospel. Paul says here's what the law cannot do. The law cannot save But that doesn't mean it should be ignored. The law shows us our sin so as to point us to Jesus, our Savior. The law helps us to know how to obey and serve God in this new covenant. And in verse 11, that's exactly what Paul says. He roots it all back to the gospel. That these things are contrary to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So Paul says, watch out. Watch out for falling off the boat into self-righteousness on one side and trying to attain salvation through the law. Watch out on the other side, too, to think that the law doesn't matter and that you can just do what you want and it doesn't matter to God. It's like steering between two ditches. Or maybe in Paul's picture, steering between this channel, between the dangerous reef and the rocks on one side and a hurricane on the other side. It's why Paul says later in chapter 4, verse 16 to this young pastor, keep watch on yourself and your teaching. On one side is the false teaching of legalism. On the other side is the false teaching of antinomianism that rejects the law, that rejects holiness. And Timothy needed this reminder. Timothy needed to remember to stand firm for the gospel with the aim of love. Love for God, love for truth, love for people. Love, listen, for the false teachers and love for those who are deceived. Love enough to rebuke them in their error. Love enough to point them to Christ. And love enough to warn of the swerving and the veering to get back on course and to get to safety. What challenges do we see to the gospel today? See the gospel of compromise, the gospel of worldliness, the gospel of accommodation, the gospel of pluralism. You keep on, I mean, you see this in all of the churches all over the world, creeping in little by little by little. We see falsehood, we see errors, we see lies threatening the church. And the question for us, as it was for Timothy in the first century, is how can we fight 
such error? How can we fight this thing? How can we refute this error and point people to the gospel of Jesus? How can we know that the truth will win? Well, back to verse 1, because this doesn't come from us. This comes from a command of God. It comes as the authority of Jesus himself. Unbeliever this morning, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I want to warn you today. Not because I dislike you, not because I hate you, because I love you, unbeliever. I want to warn you today that your ship is going down. I want to warn you, as the Apostle John did in 1 John, that the building around you is collapsing into hell. And there's no escape for you except in Jesus. And so in love, unbeliever, I call you today, command you by the authority of Jesus himself to repent and to believe that gospel. To come to Christ in faith and repentance today. Believers this morning, as Paul encouraged this young pastor, I encourage you today, stand, stand for the truth. Rebuke false teaching. Know your Bible enough to recognize it and to refute it. Knowing that when you do that, you are loving that false teacher and you are loving those who they will deceive. Because the aim of your charge today is love. Love for God, love for his truth, and love for the lost. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word that speaks to us today. By your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would call us to repentance and faith. That you would call us to greater obedience and greater faithfulness to your word. That we might love you with our whole hearts by loving your truth. And loving your word. Help us to love false teachers and unbelievers by pointing them to the truth as it is in Jesus. This morning, give us clean hearts. Give us pure hands by the Lord Jesus, by the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to fall again in love with the truth. To fall again in love with the gospel. And help us to make our aim and our goal Love, love for you and love for others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.